0: The next time you're Sunday brunching at your local breakfast joint and perusing the menu for avocado toast, you're not likely to be disappointed. Restaurants wanna know the foods that you're craving to keep you happy and coming back. The sooner they can jump on trends, the better edge they'll have over that place down the street. Trendy food, dishes, ingredients, nothing's easy to predict, but Jack Lee, the CEO of Data Central, has a deep passion behind his work for doing just that.
1: If you're like a single unit restaurant One, that's amazing, and you as the chef or owner can say, you know what, I'm going to try this new dish on my menu today, and I can just sort of see how it goes. But if you have 10,000 stores, you can't just sort of do that willy-nilly as much. It becomes way too painful if you
0: miss. So the question is, what do people actually want to eat? On this episode of IT Visionaries, Jack explains the way that Data Central thinks about the four stages of menu adoption to predict food trends. He also shares his take on how to use data to help restaurants provide for consumers and how to bring the best science to the world of food. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. His name is Jack Lee, and he is the CEO of Data Central. Jack, welcome to the show.
1: Welcome. Thanks for having me, and hey, everybody.
0: All right. Listen, everyone, IT Visionaries is back for another season. We have new guests this year, new topics, Data Central right out the gate. Jack, tell us what it is that Data Central does.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. Uh, Well, at its core, we just try to help uh, the food industry make higher quality decisions around what products to create, how to get those products into consumers' hands. You know, you think about the world of food, it's actually fairly complex, right? It's amazing that you can maybe walk or drive to your local Mexican place and order a plate of nachos. Like so much stuff had to happen for that to even be a possibility. And we're lucky to be living in that sort of a world. So I think at the end of the day, because we can help companies make better quality decisions around the foods to produce, um, what to put onto a menu, how to describe it to consumers, all those things, we are trying to help make the world just a little bit more
0: delicious in that process as well. Okay, that makes total sense. And I know food is ultimately an extremely competitive business with really low margins. So hitting a product right, is has got to be extremely important to all of these businesses, whether it's in the manufacturing side or the restaurant side. Help our audience understand a little bit. Do you only help restaurants and CPG or do you help the manufacturers too?
1: Oh yeah, no, we work with a broad range. I mean, if you think about pretty much any significant player in the world of food, uh, we're probably working with them and hopefully giving them some pretty good advice uh, and data on on what to do. So these are you know big companies like Starbucks or Burger King and, and other big restaurants. It's food distributors, like companies like U.S. Foods, which actually drive the food um, on a truck and bring it to restaurants to be served. It's also big CPG companies like General Mills and Unilever uh, or retailers like Target, for instance. We work with a pretty broad cross-section of companies. And look, I I think it's just a super interesting industry to be in, right? It's a lot of boring industries out there. Food is one of those. There's not many things that you you have to do in your life that you actually also enjoy doing like maybe maybe you could fit that on one hand you know on, on five fingers or less like what do you have? you have to eat but you actually like it too what else falls in that category
0: right there's not much uh, there's not much else uh, maybe showering that's about it that's true i mean the the having the shower is debatable though right yeah that's true there's definitely some people that do not enjoy showers aren't there some folks that say hey You can go a long
1: time between shampooing your hair and it's okay. I mean, I I shampoo every day and I I love it. I get a a thrill out of it. I can't start my day without a shower and and feeling really clean. I think some people go quite a long time and they do that as like a, you know, I don't know, badge of honor or
0: something. I don't know. Listen, our executive producer, Jana, she's on the phone. She's from a place in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado specifically. There's definitely people that she knows that they don't like showers. So you're right. But just about everybody likes food, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, you're a carnivore. I don't know. Tons of options. Everyone, usually everyone loves to eat. Do you just insult a big cross section of the population of Colorado? <laughs> oh, I, I did, I'm just saying she knows these people. So one person. Let's, we'll limit it to one person for this. Somebody.
1: I just saw Janet. She looks like a very clean person, too. So I think she's a morning shower.
0: <laughs> yeah. Allegedly, Jana says she does uh, wash her hair. But, you know, get let's get back to the data portion of this business. Give us an idea of what data goes in to influence these business decisions. You mentioned Data Central captures a lot of data to help businesses, food businesses specifically, make decisions. Is it just buying data? Is it qualitative? Give us an idea.
1: So think about um, food and about what it is that you like to eat and how important it is for you know, a major food company or a big restaurant chain or a big retailer to actually understand that with some level of nuance. You know, if, if you're like a single unit restaurant, one, that's amazing and, and we need as many of these as we can, but you can really experiment. You, can, the, you, you as the chef or owner can say, you know what? I'm gonna try this new dish on my menu today and, and I can just sort of see how it goes. But if you have 10,000 stores, you can't just sort of do that willy nilly as much. It becomes way too painful if you, if you miss. So the question is what do people actually want to eat? What's the next big new thing? And and you might think, Oh, this is, you know, this sounds like a very simple thing to solve. You know, people like pizza, people like burgers, but I don't know, are all pizzas the same? Are all burgers the same? Um, Are there certain toppings that work better on a pizza or on certain types of pizza more so than, than others? And when you have one topping on a pizza, um, what are other things that really go well with it? And how does that vary by the part of the country that you're in, whether you're in an urban area or, uh, or a rural area, by the type of customer you might have walking in through your door or who you want to target? All of these things are factors. And we thought that we could take uh, a more data-driven approach to add some science to the art of culinary creation. And I want to start by saying, making food really is an art. I mean, we have amazing artists that are chefs that are doing it. And, and and this extends across all things. I think a lot of people would be surprised to find that there are some really amazing chefs um, at even all these large chain restaurants that you don't normally think of as, you know, as an everyday person, like, oh, there's this awesome chef at the top of that restaurant. Th- there is, right? They help put together that menu, but there's so many things they have to consider when they, you know, put together their plan for the next year or two years. Uh, but they are what drives all of this innovation. We wanted to bring some science to that and help them do uh, a more efficient job of it. So, well, let me ask you this. Uh, let's say you're your big food company, you know, 20 years ago or something. How do you think you are on average getting your information on what consumers want or what the latest flavor trends are?
0: Where do you think that's coming from? So I would say back in the day, it was probably just through surveys. I remember packaged food always had surveys, you know, something where you would go to a website or click a link and, hey, tell us about this. Um, But they weren't like super detailed surveys or anything like that. I used to also work for a company that did mystery shopping, and that was more for restaurants. But we would ask reviewers to go give proper, thorough reviews. We would ask things very specific. For example, we would ask the crispness or the texture of foods or the oil levels of foods. Most people don't actually think like that. Most people just go to places and they think, oh, they like it or don't like it. So I would assume most of the f- data the food industry was collecting was similar to that.
1: So that, that is true. There's There probably would be a survey component at some point, but you have to know what goes onto the survey, right? There's a near infinite number of things you could put in your mouth. Uh, maybe, maybe that's Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but there's lots of different foods, foods and flavors out there. It would be an infinitely long survey at some point. But to get that inspiration as to, hey, what's the, the cool new flavor you might want to consider to ask people about or to try in a dish, uh, what we actually found was sort of amazing was that company after company that we visited, it really was a cliche, but it was a true one. There was literally just either a drawer or maybe like a thumbtack you know, thing on the wall where they would tack a bunch of local restaurant menus or interesting menus from around the country when people would travel. They'd say, oh, check out the stuff that I saw You know, when I went to a restaurant. And I'm like, wow, that's actually sort of amazing. You have these very, very large, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that produce uh, tons and tons of, of food and bring food into our, um, into our ecosystem that are making a lot of their decisions, initially at least based on just um, a handful of menus in some cases. So it was very, very anecdotal. And, it, and, there's, and there's certainly some merit to that, right? Because you can get really passionate about it, you can see how it's executed, but we thought you could take a more data-driven approach at the same time. So I said, you know, what happens if we just amass a data set of restaurant menus and set that up um, so it's built for uh, analytics, right? So you can see, you know, what's common and what's growing and how does it change from this type of place to that type of place, from this section of the country to that section of the country. And then over the years, we've uh, added more data sets to that to really help companies understand what do people actually want, what's growing in popularity, what should the next
0: really big thing be? All right. So this is fascinating. You mentioned from the very beginning, you had this hypothesis. So what was step one? We'd actually
1: started putting together a set of menus prior to that. Uh, And the original idea was maybe we could put some menus online for consumers to just see what's happening at a local restaurant. Well, we came to realize that there's some real value to the data as it relates to sort of insights and intelligence, as opposed to just hey, let people browse um, a local menu, and it meant uh, that the way we we had to store menu information and uh, make it accessible would be you know you had to sort of fine tune it for that specific application of analytics, and it was interesting, right? It was just inherently fascinating, even as someone that didn't start off in the the restaurant business or something, just looking at the data was like, oh, this is really cool. You know, 92% of restaurants have chicken on the menu, but pork is only on X percent. Or if you look over a couple of periods of time, you start seeing some strange flavors that most people have never heard of are trending upwards. And the question then became, well, is that trend something that will continue or not? And over a long enough period of time, do you actually... Can you actually tease out insights that will project into the future? And that's what we've been focused on for quite some time now is tracking data with a fine-toothed comb. And it's been really good for predicting what the next big thing is. So not just backwards looking, but what are the flavors of the future and what are the big, big trends of the future um, as a
0: result of that? Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So you're making correlations on the presence in the or the excuse me, the presence of a menu item, the popularity, the removal of an item. Item is decreasing popularity, which has to of course mean decreasing sales. Most restaurants don't pull things off that are selling a bunch. Give us an idea. When you started this process, how long did it take for you to notice these trends? Because you mentioned chains like big restaurants. You know, their their menus change pretty frequently, maybe quarterly.
1: Yeah, they change either two,
0: usually two or four times a year, but they
1: also have like limited time offers all the time. So every month they might have a new, you know, special menu item uh, for four or six weeks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and something like a local gastro pub run by chef might change every day. So even when you're capturing all these daily changes, you might be able to see that they might change daily. But this guy constantly keeps this type of product.
1: So one of the things we that was important to us early on was to understand the numbers side of things, right? It wasn't just like, "Hey, uh, we're trying to replace a drawer full of menus, so let's have you know slightly more menus." It was. Can we understand enough about how often trends change that we can calibrate the way that we set up our database and how we update it? And we found that um, when we get to a certain size of core menus, we could then take an annual view. And from that annual view, we would understand trends over time and have predictability into the future. Now, I will say not all menus are created equal, right? So if you're trying to predict what the next big thing is, You want to consider that a fine dining, you know, chef driven menu is different than like the neighborhood diner that's had the same menu for the last 50 years. Right. Maybe the price changes, but it's still steak and eggs or whatever. So one of the things that we observed early on is that not only is food itself sort of like an artistic pursuit, I mean, it really is culinary art. We should appreciate food as artistry. I'm personally terrible at I can't cook at all and have an incredible appreciation for those that can do great things with food. But the understanding and analysis and identification of food trends is also a, a mix of both science and art. So one of the, the early things that we observed is um, that the, we created this thing called the menu adoption cycle, which basically said every food trend, you know, flavor trend, health trend, you name it, moves through sort of a four-stage cycle. That first stage is something that we call inception, right? So maybe that trend is now just appearing for the first time in, in greater numbers on fine dining restaurant menus or at other places that serve you know, really early stage sort of ideas. Maybe it's starting to show up, um, you know, on the retail side in farmers markets, for instance, in some of the products that are sold there. Most of those early stage trends will actually die. They won't make it to the next stage. About 30% of them will continue on. And they move that first stage conception inception of what we call adoption. Now, all of a sudden, that trend is showing up in the pub. It's showing up on, a, you know, on those cool progressive food truck menus. It's maybe showing up in some of those newer fast casual sort of concepts that are doing some fun things with food, showing up in specialty grocery stores. And once a trend makes it there, there's a pretty good chance it's going to keep moving on. And then it moves into that proliferation stage, which is where chains really sort of jump on it. Then finally, it moves into something that we call ubiquity, where it's everywhere. It's on the, you know, the hospital cafeteria menu, but you can really track things across their life stages, you know, through that thing that we call the menu adoption cycle. And that's been a really helpful tool for the industry.
0: Okay. This is super fascinating. You kind of hinted at this before, and I want to talk a little bit about it, you know, Because when it comes to the bigger food companies, the bigger players, the bigger restaurants, obviously any investment they make in food, they have to source the product. They have to bring it to market. And of course, there's famous cases of restaurants missing the mark where they put something on the menu. It doesn't succeed. I know of a couple at the top of my head. McDonald's Mighty Wing was one. uh, Crystal Pepsi was another. There's a lot of different food products that people bring to market that just don't work out. So when it's a mistake, it's a serious financial problem. Um, You alluded to a couple things, right? So, how early can you recognize a trend? And then, two, how do you have enough confidence that this trend will continue? So, I'll use an example, right? Right now, we know that chicken sandwiches feel like a rage, even though Chick Fil A's been making them forever. Wendy's now has a new chicken sandwich. Popeyes has a chicken sandwich. Everyone's entering the chicken battle. That's sort of as, a, as a, a really entertaining social media battle,
1: right? And that sort of got the whole the whole thing going. So, I think that's. A little bit different, right? Everyone is asking what the next big chicken sandwich is, and it would probably have to be a very common platform that people already, you know, platforms maybe not the best consumer friendly word, a very common item that people have all the time that everyone has experience with. And that just, you know, you have another social media bragging rights competition that people can get on a bandwagon. So there's that. But you also have, you know, to your earlier question, there's like a lot of new foods and flavors that. People don't really know that well yet. And oftentimes those things come from other places around the world. So we have all these global influences over here and it's like, hey, which, you know, which horse do you bet on? And I think what's happened over the past few years and it's really fascinating is, we've seen a continuous shift to earlier stages of that menu adoption cycle, right? You have um, big food companies, big restaurant chains, big retail stores, Used to sort of focus on later stage trends, things that were really well established, all have an interest in moving earlier stage now to either differentiate or be more on trend with that trend seeking consumer. and more consumers these days want to try things at an early stage. and there's you know, a lot of reasons for it, right? The demographics, um at least in the u s, the demographics of this country have changed that we have a lot more people that you know came from you know other came from around the world or have that in their... Lineage or, or heritage, those foods sort of spread. And it's sort of interesting. I mean, once you get exposed to something you've not had before, if you like it, you sort of take that preference with you. If you have, if you never had Indian food and you have it for the first time and you're like, wow, this is delicious, um, you don't at some point say, nah, I don't like it anymore. You always have that in the back of your head, like, oh yeah, I actually sort of like Indian food now. And it just sort of like a good idea, great taste spread. And that's what we've seen. And as a result, people want to try earlier stage stuff and companies want to do earlier stage things. And the other thing that's been super fascinating is people are physically moving in the U.S. as well. They're moving from big tier one cities, downtown urban areas, and they're radiating outward in those cities to the perimeter or you know, the suburbs or maybe even rural areas that are nearby or oftentimes they're moving to entirely different cities. They're moving away from LA, New York, Chicago, into sort of more tier two type of places like Raleigh, for instance, where where you are. Uh, I just moved from Nashville. I'm now in South Florida uh, to places like those and bringing their food tastes with them. And it's significant because traditionally, um, new food flavors, trends would start in those big cities and then move to the other part of the country. And now people- in those big cities are physically moving themselves and taking their tastes to more parts of the country. And I think more big food companies are willing to make, make, bets on earlier stage stuff now as a result. And it's the right, and it's the right move.
0: Oh, it sounds like they don't need as much historical data to say, hey, this is trending in the right direction. We're just gonna take a bet on this.
1: Well, you, you need the historical data to understand if the trend is just a blip or if it's actually sort of breaking out of some
0: historic range right? So the historic data is super, super important. So what would be an example of this? Like barbecue maybe is an example of this. I feel like barbecue quickly emerged from all these different places. I started seeing Netflix shows about barbecue. I don't know if you had any examples of food where it was more regionalized that quickly spread and then other brands picked on. I want to guess Sriracha was one of them. Sriracha was sort of like a
1: cultural moment as well. Yeah. People wearing you know, Sriracha t-shirts and uh, and whatnot. But for sure, you could actually see sriracha starting to pick up on places like at places like uh, restaurants on their menu. And it was really, really apparent uh, in the 2000s that this would grow into a major trend. So even though it wasn't that common at the beginning, you could start seeing signs of an early breakout. And as a result, it spread sort of like wildfire. Uh, you know, we were able to identify kale back in the early 2000s, right? It was on maybe half a percent of menus at the time, like really, really uncommon. But you started seeing this really strange movement. You're like, wow, a lot of, you know, fine dining places are adding kale to their menu. It's moving beyond a little bit of fine dining. This looks like it's gonna be one of the big ingredients over the next 10 years and it just exploded. So you could look at the data and this is why you need that historic piece to understand what's breaking out of a range and what's likely to make it into the next stage of its cycle. You mentioned barbecue. Korean barbecue has been huge. Uh, gochujang specifically has been tremendous. And it's again, it's one of those things we could spot at an early, early stage. And many of the customers that we work with brought Korean barbecue flavors into their offerings. And a lot of those products have done uh, really quite well for them. So I don't know if we would ever dare say we can predict every trend with ultimate accuracy because there's so many things that could happen in this world. but. We certainly do a good job of improving the batting average
0: of the customers that work with us. So what other data points has Data essential started to now track? You mentioned you started cataloging and tracking menus in the presence of food items in menus, but it sounds like you're adding demographic data, other data points.
1: Yeah, demographic data. Uh, we maintain a, a census of eating places as well. So every place, it's, you know, every restaurant, hotel, hospital School, uh, grocery store, every place that serves food in the country, we maintain deep profiles on. And you can actually learn quite a bit from those analytics. Like, hey, what's the prevalence of certain types of restaurants in certain types of communities? And what does that say about the local community, Um, for instance? uh, We do uh, quite a bit of consumer-based work in terms of, you know, imagine every food flavor ingredient and knowing uh, through us, what percentage of people have eaten that thing before? Uh, what percentage have even know what it is? And is it something that they have an affinity for? Or do they have an aversion to it? So we have that information we can break it down by consumer demographic, by region of the country. So if you wanna know how people feel about black licorice, I can tell you that. And I think if we actually looked at a list, oh God, I'm gonna go off memory of the most polarizing foods, in the country. I think black licorice is on there. Variations of of liver are on that list as well. And and a few other things, but you have other things too, like, you know, pizza as a category is the most loved food in America, but then you have all the different styles of pizza. You have all the different types of crusts and we have information on all of that as well. So, uh, you know, imagine if you're a food creator or a food marketer, having this at your fingertips really removes a lot of the guesswork and no one's ever going to bat a thousand, but you can certainly improve your batting average. Every point that you improve on is a
0: whole lot of money saved and a whole lot of efficiency gained. It makes total sense. You mentioned earlier that there's a lot of nuance to food. So let's use the example of pizza. You could say it tastes good. You could say it tastes bad, but there's all these variables that go into pizza. For example, some people are going to like thinner crust. Some people like thick crust. Some people are going to like more cheese. Some are less cheese, more grease, less grease. You know what I mean? There's all these characteristics of the items as well. I'm sure that's true of every category in food, right? There's going to be different characteristics, of spice, crunch, anything else we might think of. So how does data essential collect information like that? Does it help determine the specifics of why someone likes a dish? To some extent, right? I mean, you, uh, we're sort of getting into the world of sensory right
1: now, which is like, you know, take a bite of something, feel it in your mouth. How do you, how do you feel about it? Do, so we'll know at a high level, you know, do people want a crunchy or a chewy cookie or something like that? But this is ultimately the domain of chefs and food creators to, to make the product as great as possible. I'll give you an example. I mean, you could give me a recipe, like an amazing recipe to make like, a, like an amazing pasta dish. And I would totally screw it up. Right. So there's a point where it goes beyond just the hard information itself and it's about the actual execution. And we leave that up to our customers because they do a great job of it.
0: Give us an idea of how you've brought more of this information in. Like, how are you thinking about approaching your engineering teams? Because it's a data company, but of course, you have to think a little differently when it comes to food specifically, how you're going to gather the information, how you're going to bring it together. And we already talked about this food is just as qualitative as it is quantitative. Give us an idea of how you bring the talent to work there, what do you envision for your products, and how do you best serve your customers?
1: You know, I think we've always had this sort of philosophy that we want to make products that uh, we enjoy using ourselves. And it's probably a little bit cliche, but we've really, really put a lot of, you know, muscle into making our products extraordinarily easy to use. We're we're an industry where typically at, you know, a food company, you might have A couple of people that were in charge of information or insights or consumer knowledge or something like that, that would actually work with a piece of software and or database. We thought that we could do better than that. You know, we wanted to empower those folks, but we also wanted to make something so easy to use that they could just sort of give access to it to tens or hundreds of people at those companies and, and, you know, anyone just go in and quickly find whatever piece of information they needed without much training or any training at all. So the challenge for us is as we keep adding more data sets, how do you do that in a way that the core user experience is still unbelievably easy? And you never have to worry about doing some complex training or user manual or, or, or anything like that. This is a you know continuous challenge for us. We think we have a framework that works and is super simple to use, but There might be another big piece of data that we add next year or next month, and we have to make sure that whatever we offer up to to customers will support that and allow them to retrieve information from those data sets just as easily without having to learn anything new at all. So um, our core framework is something we call SNAP. Basically, you, you come into SNAP and you have one box you can type stuff into, and it just gives you what you need. You press a button and it gives you, you know, a full presentation on whatever that topic is and you're ready to go. You go into your sales meeting or your internal marketing meeting or what have you and you are golden. Uh, so we have to make sure that we continue um, honoring that promise even as we add more, uh, more data sources and more interesting data and broader data in the future that it's still super, super simple.
0: What you said totally makes sense that people that are using your product, maybe they're not they're not software people, they're not heads down in software all the time. You got to make it super easy. This analytical part might just be a smart, small piece of their core job. So it makes total sense. The UX has to be front and center. You talked earlier about starting this and how this business, Data Central, was based on a hypothesis. You know, So I'm curious, why did you choose the food industry? All of us are food experts in some way because
1: we've all had thousands of food experiences uh, in our lives. And it's, it's something that I love food, but I'm not unique. I think most people love, love food. And I should give you an interesting stat. There's basically a division. Uh, and you, you can subdivide people in an infinite number of ways, but one of the ways that you could subdivide people is uh, their attitudes towards food. And there's about 20% of the U S population of what we call basic eaters that they're more, they eat to live. They don't live to eat, right. Is maybe the, the easiest way of, th- of thinking about that. So there's a lot more people that that live to eat, and we like those folks, and though those are the folks that come and and you know want to have a career at Data Central, and that's who we're drawn to. For me personally, I love food. It's just it's it's fascinating, right? I can't. I don't consider myself a great consumer of art, but food is sort of art, and I'm a one hell of a consumer of food, and I have strong opinions about it, but I can appreciate it all. So I think that's what sort of led us all. We all just love food and we have a great appreciation for it. And I think it's amazing. You could taste the entire world in an afternoon these days. Like that would have been unheard of in the past, uh, unless you were in a very, very small rural town with just two or three restaurants. More than likely, you could probably taste the entire world or a big chunk of the world in an afternoon going from restaurant to restaurant, just walking to them, maybe even in some cases. That's incredible right? Think about what people were eating 500 years ago on average. That would have sucked. That would have been so terrible. And it's so awesome today. It's like, oh, do I want to have food from this part of the world or this part of the world? Or do I want to have a pizza made this way versus that way? We have so much nuance in our choices now and it's, it's delicious and it's fun.
0: Yeah, it's great. When you first started, did you, were you immediately thinking to make a business out of this or was this just a school project or something like that that you wanted to see for yourself?
1: Yeah, I think it was always designed to be a business. It was myself and, um, and two of my uh, early business partners. And, and we all had sort of the same shared vision. And hey, we can make this a more efficient. We can bring science to this world of art. But that was it from the beginning. I think we all saw the inefficiencies with how some of those decisions were being made by big companies up front. We said, you know what? Uh, we can totally make, help companies make much, much higher quality decisions. And back then, I already know, the very first version of our software was uh, programmed
0: and, and shipped to customers on CD. So we were thinking about that. So what I find fascinating, and I'll date myself right now. So I was in college in 99 when Data Central came live and search was just beginning, Google wasn't really even the primary search engine at the time. We used other search tools like, uh, I can't remember, like AltaVista or something like that. And I remember it wasn't really clear how much value you would get out of search. I remember searching for products, but you wouldn't find websites about them. So I wasn't quite yet relying on the internet, I think, to to get information. So did you know right away that you had something? You're shipping CDs, you're thinking to yourself, hey, all this data is going to move to the cloud, everyone's going to want to search for it. What was the reaction when people first saw you could search this information?
1: It was actually pretty amazing. So I remember uh, going into, you know, visit with uh, potential customers and you would go in uh, and this, you know, everything was in person back then. You'd sit down, uh, you would actually bring your own projector with you. I mean, that was sort of the, the common thing. So you'd carry you know lug around this big projector, you'd plug your stuff in. And most of the time we would fire the thing up. And it's like people's eyes would get super, super big. And they'd be like, oh my God, I did not even know this is possible. And uh, they would often sign up um, either on the spot or give us a call later that day. It's like the world's shortest sales cycle at the time because it was just instantly obvious how this would be really helpful. And that was you know a really, really early version of our software. We've since added so much more data and so many more things you can do. But I, I think there was a real need for better quality information back then. Uh, And I think there is still a need for better quality information, but I think the next generation of information is going to be less about discrete pieces of data and more about what you can learn from the combinations of data. Or, you know, I don't know if AI is an overused term, but all the things that can be processed through machine, learned through machine learning as we bring in multiple data sets that look at, you know, where people are and, The composition of food and other things that are happening in the broader environment. It's going to get really, really interesting in the years ahead, I think.
0: No doubt about it. As your data science improves overall and the technology, as well as your own team members, improve your ability to bring that information with more confidence. Obviously, the food industry is a very tough industry. Any information you can help someone make a great decision is going to be extremely useful. So I think you have, like you said, plenty of legs to grow. But before you go, we want to ask you some personal questions. All right. It's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Jack, this is where we ask you questions outside the world of data central. So our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? All right. Let's give it a shot. Let's see. All right. You went to UCLA, right? I did. Oh, you actually did research. I sometimes forget myself, but yeah. Did you ever eat at D.D. Reese?
1: I did. And there was always a line over there because they had 25 cent cookies at the time. I don't know if there's still 25 cents. They used to be a quarter though.
0: Yeah. How is it still so inexpensive? I don't know if it's exactly 25 cents, but I immediately thought it was a mob front. <laughs> like how does D.D. Reese make money?
1: A Buck is pretty good, but I mean, it was literally a quarter, I think, for a long time. I and mean, they had an amazing ice cream sandwich there. I think it's just the go for volume and you'll be good and be super, super efficient about it, because I think
0: I mean they're in Westwood, Hollywood, this is like the most prime time real estate around. They probably have to do I don't know how many turns to make a profit.
1: Westwood was also pretty different back then when I remember it because that was like the place where people would go to see movies. This is before you had all the multiplexes and stuff, and you had those big standalone theaters, and it wasn't just college students you know in Westwood, it was people coming to see like the latest movie that opened up, but that Didy Reese place huge line. And then when you get to the front of the line, you very quickly pay and get your cookie and you go. So I think like the turnover rate was like super, super high, which probably, which probably helped. I had the same thought like, oh, maybe there's like something weird going on or this is a front for something. I used to feel the same way about there's a yogurt shop in LA just uh, down the street from there called the Big Chill, which has amazing frozen yogurt, but there's always a line out the door. I'm like, why are people waiting in line for this frozen yogurt shop and we'll wait like 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes or longer. And there's another Froyo place right across the street and it's dead empty. It's rather, rather amazing. And I think I saw that that little Froyo place did like a couple million dollars a year in business for a tiny, tiny little store. But it shows you when you take quality and you bring it to like another level. So it's not just high quality, but it's exceptional and unique. People will pay for it and they'll wait for it.
0: <laughs> That's undoubtedly true. I think every town has a business like that where competitors come in and try to take it out. And for whatever reason, they just can't get it done. People just gravitate towards that existing business. No, you build up a lot of loyalty right in the meantime, a ton of loyalty. For yourself, you mentioned you're an absolute foodie. Sounds like you've tasted things from everywhere. But if someone visits you, where are you taking them?
1: I grew up in LA, right? So I'm living in South Florida now. But if if I go back to LA, there are probably two things I want to get. Good sushi, which sadly has been hard to find in my area of South Florida. Uh, so no offense to all the local Japanese. And uh, i would give you a pet peeve. Like most of the Japanese places here are the places that serve sushi are also Thai restaurants, which I think is just fundamentally wrong. I, I, I hate that. Because I think some people think that, you know, Asian food is all sort of like, you know, falls in the same domain, but it's pretty different. Uh, so great sushi in LA, uh, or I, I could always go for a really good Japanese curry. It's hard to find as well, but it's fantastic.
0: So what brought you to Florida? Just want to
1: be close to water. And I want to be close to water that you could actually go into. You know, after being in LA for 30 years, I'd probably been to the beach, maybe just a handful of times.
0: Uh, over here, you have warm water uh, year round, which is really quite nice. So it sounds like you've definitely visited many places. What are some of your favorite places to travel to?
1: I'm mostly in the US. I haven't really traveled much. It's, my my travel is dictated by you know, where we have customer visits and and meetings and whatnot typically. So I think I've tried to like mix business life with personal life. I've used those as opportunities. So sometimes maybe you stay an extra day and you sort of get to know that city. But if it comes to food, you never go wrong with traditionally some of those big cities like Chicago is fantastic. LA is fantastic. But more and more, you're seeing really cool, smaller cities
0: with really interesting food scenes pop up. So outside of food and water, what are your other hobbies and interests? I'm a pretty basic person.
1: I spend more time than I like to admit on the couch watching Netflix and otherwise just edging away. Uh, But you know, it's nice and it's it's always there, right? I've not been a great planner personally. Like it's it's hard for me to say, okay, we're gonna do this on you know next Saturday and you know make plans way in advance. I'm just I'm not good at that. So as a result, it's like, hey, what's on Netflix?
0: Well, I want to say, Jack, thank you for sharing your personal life and of course, sharing some of the journey at Data Essential. I personally have had experience on the marketing side and seen the inner workings of a couple of different major food brands from retailer or food sellers, manufacturers. And I've even managed to see the 7-Eleven test kitchen once. And I can tell you that there are rollers as far as the eye can see. Were you like a reporter or something? And what, what gave
1: you that opportunity?
0: the first software company I was a part of was a social marketing, social media management company called XBion, which eventually got acquired by another company in a similar space called Sismos, which then got acquired by another company called Meltwater. And the social software still exists. And at the time, all these different restaurants and brands were trying to figure out what people were saying about their, their food and their products on social. Maybe
1: used Meltwater. Yeah.
0: It's great. Yeah. And so... A lot of our clients were these restaurants, and 7 Eleven was a customer, Applebee's was a customer, some of the big CPGs, Coca Cola, Mondelez, they were all customers. So, for a lot of the companies, I got to see the inner workings that went into deciding flavors. And so, I remember being at the 7 Eleven test kitchen when vendors would bring their products, and there's only three heating elements out of 7 Eleven they have microwaves, they have rollers, and they have that pizza tray thing. So, if you were a vendor and you brought something that required heating and it couldn't be heated on one of those three things, it would have never been accepted. Yeah. Equipment is a huge thing.
1: It's, 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 and, and most restaurants and other places serve food don't have the space for equipment, even if they wanted it, they just don't have the space there. So actually you're a great person to ask. So a, a question came up in one of our marketing meetings, I don't know, a year or two ago, which is, why is this thing called Meltwater? Like we didn't, we were just like, wait, why is it called Meltwater? Cause this isn't water. Or, it's already melted. I don't get it. So do you know where that name came from?
0: Oh, I don't know. The company, Meltwater was the company that acquired the company I was at. So when we got acquired two times up to melt water. I don't really know where the name came from. Well actually I think it's because the idea was when the ice melts, all the water comes together. The founder's Norwegian. So the the company's founded in Norway. So there's a there's a lot of ice in Norway. There's a lot of ice to melt. Yeah, there you go. So it makes sense. Yeah. He's a Norwegian Korean guy.
1: That's a cool combination. I would go so far as to say there may not even be a single Norwegian Korean restaurant in this country.
0: Okay. We got to go. We got to go find out. Is there a Norwegian Korean restaurant?
1: It'll happen. And, and that's the beautiful thing is that all these things will happen, right? As we have you know, more influences starting to mix together, you're going to get all these really cool combinations and food's always changing. It's like art. It's, it's always something new. So it's fun.
0: Well, listen, we need more investment for people making healthy foods because I'm also a big eater and it's a problem. I need someone to, ha- uh, to figure out how to make vegetables taste just as good as everything else.
1: You have a lot of companies working on that, and I think we're going to start seeing some really interesting stuff. So uh, the future's bright.
0: There we go. Jack, CEO from Data Central, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries.
1: All right, thanks, Albert. Thanks, everyone.